Matthew chapter 7. Open up there, um, and we're going to read our text and dive in. So we're going to start in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and it was, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Okay, so that is a, a beefy section as Jesus is closing the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to look at the first two-thirds of that section. So think of tonight as part one of like a two-part season finale. That's what's happening here. Jesus pulls out all his biggest stops. And so that kind of the way he's landing takes a little bit of time. And so we're going to cover the first two-thirds or so. And then next week we're going to pick up in part two. And so as we let this text soak and marinate in us, would you join me in praying. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been in for months and months, unpacking what you have to say about life in this world and life in your kingdom. Would you speak to us and teach us today as we are investigating what life in your kingdom looks like? And Father, would you help me teach and preach in a way that is honorable and faithful to you and to the text and God, would we be wholly changed and transformed no matter what our journey is with you? Would you lead us to change, Holy Spirit-fueled change? And Father, ultimately, would we just make much of you this evening? Amen. Amen. So we are in the Gospel of Matthew. If you are new, newish uh, to what's happening here, and Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of all this history that God has with the, the, with his people, the Israelites. So that's kind of a lot of why he's writing. Is he is writing an apologetic or a gospel or a message to largely Jewish people to help them understand that Jesus is the one they've been waiting for. 
Now, a lot of us are are probably not Jewish in this room, but the message still applies because a lot of their questions about Jesus and this Savior who is supposedly fulfilling all these prophetic promises is, He the one? Is He the one we've been waiting for? Is He the King we've been waiting for? Is He the prophesied fulfillment of everything we've been waiting for and expecting? And Matthew writes this gospel to say, yes. He is that king. He's who you've been waiting for. And because he's the person you've been waiting for, he has the authority to teach you about God and life and life in the kingdom. And so we find ourselves today at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of his most famous teachings. It's his largest block and his first block in the book of Matthew. And and in the book of Matthew, a lot of his other teachings find their root in the Sermon on the Mount. So it's vital to understand what he's getting at here. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is, two, is two things we've been saying these last few months over and over again. The first, it's a manifesto of life in the kingdom. So it's a, it's a mission statement. It's a flag planted in the ground, a line drawn in the sand. However you want to visualize that, he's saying this is what kingdom life looks like. This is what it looks like to follow after me and model your life after me. So it's kind of this mission statement or manifesto for those who would call themselves disciples. But it's also a standing invitation to anyone and everyone that would hear to be a part of this kingdom life. So you remember at the end of Matthew chapter 4, Matthew tells us that there are two groups of people following Jesus around at this point. Who are those two groups of people? Who's one of them? Disciples. Okay. Who's the second group of people? Not necessarily. That was a good answer, but the wrong answer. Matthew doesn't really call out Pharisees necessarily. There are times at points where we think maybe there are some religious elites amongst the people, but the second group he describes as following Jesus are the crowds. That's all. That's all we get. We get the disciples and the crowds. And so we have this sense that there are those who are fully bought into Jesus and all he's teaching and all he's saying and, and him healing, casting out demons as his fame is spreading throughout the area. And then there are those who are kind of following after him and kind of interested in this person or this rabbi Jesus. And maybe they've been healed. Maybe they've heard a, a sermon when he's came through town or whatever. And so there's this kind of wondering of who is this person. And so there's the disciples and the crowds. And to the disciples, it's a manifesto of kingdom life. And to the crowds, it's an invitation in. Say, come find life in me. Let me show you what life is truly. And Jesus says the way into this kingdom is the realization that you have nothing to bring. We're a level playing field. None of us, none of our church attendance or achievements or ministry work or volunteer hours or whatever will give us entry into this kingdom. Because you are a good person or a bad person has no bearing on entrance into the kingdom of God. He says, is it exclusively by my grace? Matthew 5, 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of God. And the poor in spirit is this posture of open-handedness and saying, I have nothing to bring. And kind of even left needing something, right? We have nothing to our name when we approach Jesus. And it's by his grace that he welcomes us in. And so far in the Sermon on the Mount, he's taught on our identity in him, the relevance of the Old Testament or what Jesus would call the law and the prophets. He's taught about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, generosity, prayer, fasting, anxiety, judging others, and now tonight what it truly means to be a disciple. And this is how he lands. 
He lands with sort of giving us this picture that he says, okay, you've heard me talk for this whole time. I don't know how long it actually was, but you've heard me talk. You've heard me unpack what kingdom life looks like. And there's a decision that has to be made. There's a decision. When we're faced with what kingdom life in Jesus looks like, he's asking the disciples and the crowd, are you in? Is this it? Are you going to join in? And he gives us three warnings and how he ends his sermon. It's a little bit strange, and it starts very Jesus-esque, right? Maybe American Jesus in verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. The golden rule, right? Very familiar to us and very easy for us to get on board with a verse like that. We all want to be treated like other people would treat themselves, right? But Jesus doesn't stop there. We stop there a lot. We stop at verse 12. But the paragraph continues. Enter by the narrow gate. Jesus is saying the kingdom life may not be for everyone. So Jesus wraps up his sermon. He leaves us four warnings and a question. And so tonight, we're going to look at the first three warnings, and then next week, uh, I actually have a friend of mine coming in to teach, and he's going to end on the last question and kind of this final warning. But the three warnings uh, tonight are between, and he gives these visual pictures of gates and roads, two kinds of prophets, or this tree bearing fruit, uh, two kinds of disciples, uh, those who follow after Jesus, and then the final one is two different foundations, And he's basically saying that there's this binary choice that we have to make. There's no gray area here. He says, you're either with me or against me. You're either in my kingdom or not in my kingdom. And and phrases like that are really hard for us who like to find the gray area, who like to find the wiggle room in things. And we like to explain or justify our way out of a situation when Jesus is presenting a quite binary decision we have to make. So think of these these warnings as Jesus is wrapping up his sermon. Think of these warnings like kind of concentric circles going from kind of outward influences or decisions to slowly inward decisions and influences. So I have a little graphic, Stephanie, go ahead and put it up. But we're going to look at kind of this, this concentric circle that we have here. And the first is talking about the gate. That's his first kind of visual picture he provides for us. And he says, beware of following the crowd and ascribing to their worldviews and systems. And so as he's talking about the gate, we're meant to have this picture of outside cultural influences that may impact our life. Go ahead and do the next one. Then he talks about fruit. And so he's beware of those inside the church that might lead you from the way of Jesus. So we're going from just culture at large to those that are inside the community of believers. Third, false righteousness. Beware of claiming a righteous life without being changed by Jesus. So we're moving from outward relationship to what's happening in here. Next one. And he uses this picture of the house. Beware of your inner self that might lead you away from Jesus. And the final one, the little dot is, where is your authority? What are you building your life on? Where is your authority? Or to put more simply, Who says so? So far, Matthew is giving us an account, a gospel, an apologetic for why Jesus has the authority to say the things he's saying. That's why the first three chapters, maybe a little bit puzzling for us, but the first three chapters are a genealogy and all these really specific answers to prophetic promises God had made with Israel throughout the past. That's why we have such a detailed account of his early life kind of birth narrative 
kind of checking those prophetic promises off one by one to see he really is the one that was foretold. He really is this King, Messiah, Savior who we've been all waiting for. And because he is that person, he has the authority to say these audacious things. And so we're going to tackle the first three warnings today. So we're not going to get to the very end. So sorry, we're going to leave you a little bit of a cliffhanger. But we're going to do the first three, uh, and then we're going to look at the next two next week. And so today in our text, um, these three warnings find their echo in another piece of Scripture. In fact, another teaching of Jesus that he is telling his disciples. And so they find their echo in John chapter 14, verse 6, where Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Once again, a very binary presentation of life and salvation. Like there's not a whole lot of wiggle room to say maybe there's another way to find forgiveness or salvation. Maybe there's another way to this God that sort of mystically is in charge of everything. Jesus says, no, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, and I'm the only access point to the Father. Jesus says we have access to the Father and life in him. He has the salvific power and he alone. Through him we can be known by the Father and behold the joy of finding God and being found by God. Jesus gives us these warnings, these things to watch out for. Uh, a writer on this subject said they're sort of like road signs as you're getting closer and closer to like a, a construction zone. He's saying, beware, watch out, take notice. Take notice of the things that might lead us away from the way of Jesus. Let's look at the first one. Beware of following the crowd and ascribing to their worldviews and value systems. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And this gate would represent sort of the outside or cultural forces that might lead us away from the way of Jesus. And this would have been a very vivid picture for his audiences, not so much for us now because we really don't have gates or walls in our cities or anything like that, but Jerusalem in Jesus' day, and to this day still has some of the old retaining walls and gates, it would have been a very vivid picture. There were different gates to access different points in the city, and some gates were wide, and you could honestly drive a car through it, or you could take a, a horse and a cart through it. Masses of people can go through those gates and on those roads. And then there were some hidden gates throughout the walls that you maybe had to traverse a little bit or maybe only like a donkey carrying a few things, not pulling a cart, can get through. And you maybe had to wait your turn. And so he uses this very present, vivid example of what life in Christ is. So this is not the easy way where anyone just walks in, where you can follow the way of the crowd. He says, the way of my life is hard and difficult. It's easy to pass by. It's easy to not notice. Jesus sets his face against any idea that you can simply go with the flow and find life in him. Which is maybe a little bit of our, of our temptation here in America, in our time, and our place, when so many claim to be quote-unquote evangelical Christians somewhere around the, it's hard depending on who you talk to, but roughly 70% of Americans would claim to be some sort of Christian. 
And if you think, if there were 70% true disciples of Christ, this country would probably look a lot different, wouldn't it? So we cannot buy into this idea that if we just go with the flow, we will somehow find our way by accident into the way of Jesus. You really have to want to get in this gate, Jesus is telling us. You have to seek it out. You have to find it. If you just drift, allowing the current to take you where it will, you'll miss it. But this gate leads to life. And all the other sorts lead to destruction. The gate to the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is not wide, it's narrow. The tide of culture and humanity will go right by that gate. Jesus says that the normal, more common path is going to be the one that blows right by the gate that leads to life. Why? Because the gate is narrow. The way is hard. And those who find it are few. Michael Wilkins, a New Testament commentator, says this. George, I only have one, I promise, today. I only have one. It's just so good. Gave me such a hard time about all my quotes last week. I received it, and there's only one. Michael Wilkins, he's a New Testament commentator. He says, you see, the narrow gate and road is much more restrictive. So not only is it hard and narrow, it's restrictive because it is limited to Jesus and his manner of discipleship. His is the minority way, insofar as few will dare abandon popular opinion of people and the religious establishment. This is a problem for us because Jesus' invitation to the kingdom is, is not usually the popular way of going about things, both inside and outside the church. We can't always discover God's will by appealing to the majority. In fact, Jesus' ways usually found away from the crowds and the majority. Because our ways are not always God's ways, Isaiah tells us. Jesus has just gotten done sharing some very intense realities of the kingdom of God. And, and he's talked about the importance of, of being poor in spirit, pursuing a new kind of law that goes way beyond the old covenant, and, and trusting God to provide, and all these really hard truths we have to wrestle with. And he gets to this point saying, are you going to choose this way of life, or are you going to go with the flow of everybody else? The things he is saying are not palatable for everyone. And one of the interesting things about the ministry of Jesus is where we think a successful preacher or pastor might be growing and growing and adding more people, we find in the ministry of Jesus, people actually are being subtracted, right? People are leaving him, walking away from him. He starts talking to crowds, hundreds and thousands, and by the end, he has 11 people that are willing to buy into this idea of Jesus. It's very countercultural. I don't know if, if we were living at the time of Jesus, I don't know if we would count his ministry as a quote-unquote success. Because he kept scaring people away. His message was too intense. He drew too many lines in the sand. He demanded too much of people. He says, the gate and the way is hard and narrow. God desires that all mankind will be saved, Paul writes to Timothy. And come to the knowledge of the truth. But Jesus realizes that the reality of that cost is far too great for some. In a sense, he's, he's closing this sermon with not only warnings, but an opportunity to kind of bring your life under the light of the gospel. And say, how, does this, how is this lining up? How are my desires, my plan for my life, my agenda lining up with the way of Jesus? 
And he's giving us a barometer throughout the Sermon on the Mount of how to line our life up with the way of Jesus. And he says, instead, don't go with the flow, but pursue the way of Jesus, even when it clashes with cultural norms. And I'll say in parentheses, inside and outside the church. Pursue the way of Jesus, even when it clashes with cultural norms. Jesus' way is subversive in our culture. It goes against the norm. It goes against the set, agreed-upon way of doing things. Uh, as, as just an example or, or whatever, I was uh, hanging out with um, about 10 or 12 people who uh, want to pursue membership here at Anthem, and so we're kind of teaching a class and talking around and, and kind of rallying around some texts about what it means to belong in the church. And I was just thinking, as I was thinking of, of this text right here, how countercultural it is right now to commit to something. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's not a revolutionary or new thought or whatever, but it just feels like right now in our culture there is such a... a um, uh, priority and importance given to adventure or given to the next cool thing or holding out and waiting for something better. And it is so countercultural to say, for better or for worse, you're my family. When things are easy and when things are hard, we're family. I'm always reminded of, of when I do weddings with a text like this for better or for worse, for sicker or for poorer. All these, all these covenants we make before God and, and our friends and family. It is incredibly countercultural to commit to something like that. Jesus says, pursue the way of Jesus even when it clashes with cultural norms. Our second warning, verse 15, says, beware of those inside the church that might lead you away from the way of Jesus. This is a strange one, and he's giving his warning. He's using a vivid picture that reveals a few things. So if we're looking at verses 15 through 20, the first thing that we see is that the implication that these false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing that are actually ravenous wolves tells us that the, the dangers are coming from within. He's not saying that wolves are coming to ravage the sheep. He's saying wolves disguised as sheep are coming to ravage the sheep. So, so frequently in Scripture, the church is talked about with sheep and in the context of this relationship with sheep and shepherds, which is the second thing. We're meant to think of the various pictures of members of the church as sheep and how the, and how the kind of people interact with each other. And we know that a, a good shepherd is meant to lead a group of sheep, a flock. Right? These are very apt pictures for a farming community that are sometimes lost on us. But what Jesus is telling us here is there will be those dressed as sheep who want to devour the sheep, meaning a good shepherd will feed the sheep. Good leaders of a church will feed the sheep. Will feed the sheep. They're there for the nourishment, the growth, the maturation of the, the church that God has entrusted to that set of leadership. Jesus says these false prophets will come disguised as sheep and feed on the sheep. Shepherds feed the sheep. Wolves feed on the sheep. And Jesus says, look to their life. What are they doing? What is their character like? In the Old Testament, the, the test 
for true and false prophets was to basically see if the thing they were prophesying about came true. So a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament was alluding to things to come. And so you could easily, maybe it would take generations, but you could see if they were true or false prophet. And Jesus gives us maybe a more immediate and graphic picture for how to test the life of those coming to bring news, advice, gospel messages as to look at their life. Not just the things they say, but look at their character. Look at how they treat their family. Look at how they treat their friends. And he's saying this specifically as those will come into the community and try to proclaim a message other than the way of Jesus. And the way to know if they are a true or false prophet or a true or false teacher of the word is to look at their life to examine their life. Jesus is giving us insight into handle these situations which he expects to come. He expects that there's going to be wolves dressed as sheep tearing the body apart. I'm reading, I'm in, I, this, is going to t- this book is going to take me forever, so you guys are going to hear about it quite a lot, but I'm reading this book called The Story of Christian Theology. I'm in the late 300s right now, so I have quite a bit of, of room to grow here, but what is utterly fascinating is as soon, not, not even as soon as the early apostles died, but while the apostles, John, Peter, Paul, were still living and leading and starting churches, there were already divisions and heresies coming up inside the church. Like Jesus' body was, had barely ascended to heaven and there's already strife and divisions and theological issues in the church. He expects this is going to be an issue, so he trains the church on how to look out and deal for those things. Jesus says, look at the fruit that comes out of their lives and teachings. Healthy trees bear good fruit, but diseased trees bear bad fruit. Jesus says you will recognize these false prophets or teachers by their fruit. And fruit's more than just simple deeds, it's everything they are. It's the outflow of their life. It's so we're meant to think of a tree. Like if you have a good, solid, healthy apple tree in your backyard, you're going to get good apples. My dad is an avid gardener. I've never had his green thumb, but he has a really big backyard up in, up in the Bay Area where the house is, and, and he has all these plants. It's like a jungle back there. It's really not like kid safe, but he has like a wild jungle of persimmons and, and pomegranates and never any like useful fruits like an apple or a pear. He's got weird fruits in the backyard. But, uh, so if I come back with like huge bags of persimmons, you got to take them from me. Uh, but so he's got all these trees in the backyard, and it is once again a very, like there's not a whole lot of gray area. If you have a good tree, you're going to get good fruit. Like, there's not a whole lot of rocket science to that. Now, you can analyze soil samples and determine the right climate and everything for the things you're growing, but if you have a healthy tree, you'll see that it's healthy by its good fruit. If you start getting disgusting, gross fruit coming off a tree, you know there's something wrong with that tree, right? Once again, the sort of binary picture we have of either you have it or you don't. Either you have healthy fruit or you have bad fruit. Good fruit does not come from diseased trees. But more optimistically, bad fruit won't come from good trees. Jesus says, look at their lives. He says, look at the people that are leading and teaching the word of God in your life. Look at their character. Look at their lives in addition to just speaking the truth. That's an invitation for you guys to look at my life too, by the way. Like, look at how I treat my wife, Sherry. Look at how I treat my kids. Look at how I spend my time, the things I'm doing. It is an invitation for you to look at my life. And if the things I say up here do not line up with my life out there, I am a false prophet in a bad tree. 
So this is a weighty kind of convicting thing for those who might be leaders in the church, but it's also your responsibility as the church to be on guard, to be testing the word of those who come and proclaim messages to you. There will be a steady stream of people attempting to undercut the kingdom of God from within. And those people's lives and our messages will not line up with Jesus. And as the church, you are instructed to discern. You are instru- That's your job as the church. John the Baptist told people that came out to listen to him that they should bear good fruit in keeping with repentance as a sign of their readiness for the gospel. That was his message to those who had been kind of waiting for this Messiah and maybe their expectations had grown in different ways or they maybe become lapsed in their spiritual life. And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And one of the ways we can ensure that someone is not a false prophet is if they are living a life of repentance and being shaped in humility by Jesus and his church. If anyone is above repentance or above being taught, that's somebody to watch out for. There are, I mean, there are a lot of guys we don't bring on to, to leadership or eldership or pastoral ministry or whatever, but first and foremost, I look for someone who's teachable. If you have arrived and learned everything and always have the right answer for everything, that's a red flag in my mind. John and Jesus together have this picture that a good leader is one that is the first repenter. The one living a life shaped by Jesus and the humility of welcoming the feedback of other people. Jesus says he is the truth and the barometer for truth. Real truth produces fruit. So for to produce fruit, Jesus says we have to be connected to him. He says that in in John 15. That as as a healthy tree that will produce good fruit, we have to be connected to our source. Healthy grapes come from healthy branches that are coming from a connected vine. And so Jesus gives us a little bit of process. If we look at what he has to say in John and and look at John's words in, in Matthew, he says, be connected to the vine for all of us, not just those who are teachers. Be connected to Jesus. Repent and keep on repenting, and that will produce a life of bearing fruit. Real transformation is the test of the reality of the impact of the gospel of God in someone's life. Real transformation. Whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or five minutes, we are continually being changed and transformed into the image of Jesus. You haven't arrived. This isn't it. Like, you don't reach level 10 in Christianity and you can stop learning and stop growing and stop being changed by the Holy Spirit. This is a lifelong journey for us. And Jesus says, beware of those who think they have arrived. They think they don't need repentance in their life. They don't need to be shaped by Jesus anymore. Beware. Beware. And as the church, you are called to guard, protect, defend, and pursue truth. That is your job as the church, to pursue truth. 
So churches, uh, gatherings like this are usually a mixed bag of people, right? So there are people who are passionately pursuing the way of Jesus in this room, and there are probably people who are apathetic to the way of Jesus in this room. There's probably people who have never really experienced life with Christ in this room. That's not uncommon. It's probably every church gathering. There are people you are sitting next to who may be way vibrant in their pursuant life of Christ or may be totally apathetic and, and stale and stand still. And that's, that's common. That's in every church uh, uh, and so here, as we are to guard, protect, defend, and pursue truth, uh, there's two things we uh, should not do. And the first is, is for those of you who probably know a lot of Bible, don't go heresy hunting. Uh, and so what I mean by that is there has to be a little bit of grace in this relationship because uh, as someone like me who just talks a lot, it's probably like 90% of the things I'm saying are accurate and true. And maybe that's like a really optimistic guess, but there's bound to be a certain percentage of things I say that may be wrong just because of the volume of things coming out of my mouth on a regular basis. Uh, and so if you're a talk first, think later kind of person like I am, that's probably true of you too. So don't go heresy hunting, but seek to defend and pursue truth. But the flip side of that is don't swallow everything whole. And so don't sit there in, in the row and listen to a teacher and kind of critique every little thing. He said, oh, well, he said this and not this. He really should unpack that later. And there, there's helpful teaching feedback for sure. But I mean, like, there's a point in which that becomes our aim. But at the same time, if you're sitting in that row, don't wholly swallow everything I say. If what I'm saying does not line up with what's in the text, you should be on guard for that. You should be defending that. You should be pursuing that. That means, as a church, we need to have some level of biblical literacy to know if what I'm saying are total and utter lies. Don't swallow everything whole. Pursue truth. Be on guard. Defend. Pursue truth. There's this posture that, that Jesus references. Peter talks about it, too. This posture of, of readiness. I think that comes into such direct contrast with our lackadaisical posture that we approach our spiritual life with. We're to be ready, ready with a word of encouragement or thanksgiving or worship, ready to hold each other accountable to living the way Jesus calls us to live, ready to watch out for the coming, the second coming of Jesus. We're to live our lives in a ready posture, not wasting a minute. And often we take a back seat and we say, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, whatever, I just can't be bothered with that. My, my job is too busy. My family is too busy. I can't be bothered with engaging in prayer or engaging in reading scripture to know if the people who are teaching are even teaching the gospel of Jesus. We have a ready posture. Okay, warning three. Warning three. Beware of claiming a righteous life without being changed by Jesus. This one is the one that might hit home for a lot of us. Jesus says, not everyone who looks the part will be in his kingdom. And so, Matthew was writing to a specific group of people, but I think this is one of those times that that specific group of people comes into direct alignment with, with our life. So he was writing to a group of, of Jews, largely. Matthew's gospel, he's writing to Jews. And, and Jews had, they were waiting for, for this king for hundreds of years. God had made all these promises with them. They'd waited, waited. Sometimes God would speak. Sometimes he would send a prophet. Sometimes they would just have these years of silence. And what had happened 
was over time, rather than valuing being found in God and being his people because there was an active, vibrant relationship, they rested on the fact that they were simply Jews. And because of that, they were God's people. They didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to pursue anything. They didn't have to actively seek or engage God. They simply sat back and said, I'm a son of Abraham. I'll be let in. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'll be let in. So if that was the the current climate in Jesus' day, the climate I think we have to wrestle with just a little bit um, is resting on a Christian heritage, or resting on the fact that we are a Christian nation. Heavy quotes on that one for those listening on the podcast. Right? That we, maybe our parents had some sort of life of faith and so we're automatically brought in. Or we're not like the heathens or pagans we see around the world, so we're probably going to be let in. Or I do, I do a lot of good things. Jesus will let me in. And he says to those who live a life of false righteousness, or maybe assume they'll just be brought in, he says, I never knew you. The first century Jews were expecting a political victory. They were expecting some physical and social redemption. They were expecting a leader who would restore their earthly glory. And so over time, because they were just God's people, expectations and entitlements grew within them. And I think for us, we have to look at our lives and see what are our expectations and entitlements with Jesus. Do we expect simply because our parents were Christians we're in, that we're entitled to salvation? Do we expect, because we try to do more good things than bad things, that we are entitled to forgiveness or life in Christ? What are the things we expect or feel entitled to from God? Do we expect and feel entitled to his blessing, a.k.a. making lots of money, having a happy, healthy family? Do we expect that because we show up at church every few weeks, like he's going to give us some favor? Jesus says no. He says don't rest on the fact that you have a Christian background or ascribe to a Christian culture, heritage, or simply show up to church. He says true disciples are the one who do the will of my Father. That is the barometer for a true disciple of Christ. Many will proclaim faith, but their lives don't reflect it. Many will say good things up in front like I'm doing right now and will not be found in the kingdom. Jesus says many will cast out demons, and I will not know them, because they do not do the will of my Father. This is a tough one to grapple with, because I think if you're anything like me, you'll read this text and kind of look inward, and and it should be hard. (laughs) It should be a tough thing for us to grapple with, We should line up our lives with the message of Jesus and say, how is this computing? Jesus says he is the life. Not only is he the life, but he's given us the example of the life to be lived. 
It's like most of, of Hebrews is talking about how he was an example that went before us as a better angel, better Moses, better priest, better covenant. And because of the life he lived, we have an example of how to live this life here and now. We often like distance ourselves from Jesus and we're saying, well, yeah, he was God, so he could do all these things he's talking about. Jesus doesn't make that distinction. He lives a life and says, look at everything I'm doing. Look at how I'm acting. Look at how I'm treating people. Look at how I'm preaching, healing people, casting out demons. This is the life that you're brought into. Look at how I treat those. Look at how I proclaim the good news to those that were poor, broken, needy, the oppressed, the marginalized. Look at how I spent time with them and valued them as God's creation. This is the life that you're brought into. Scripture has many warnings about being a hearer only and not a doer. I have a couple verses from James that we're going to read together. Uh, James, a, oh man, a hard book to grapple with. But in James chapter 1, James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving who? Yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. So we're meant, I mean, there's a lot of different things you could say on that, on that verse. We're meant to like think how ridiculous that scenario would be. That one would look in a mirror and immediately forget. It is a ridiculous, silly scenario that would happen. James says the same scenario, to hear the word and not be a doer of the word, is also a ridiculous scenario. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The next chapter over in James 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, is James saying the way we enter into the kingdom of God is by doing good things? No. What he is saying is if you are a true disciple, if you have true faith, it will produce good fruit. If you are a good tree, it will produce good fruit. A tree doesn't produce good fruit so that it would be a good tree. A tree, naturally, that is good, will produce the good fruit. Your faith in Jesus should produce a radical life of compassion and mercy and grace and kindness, preaching the gospel and loving people into the kingdom of God. It's not the works that save us. Grace saves us by faith, but faith without works is a dead faith. That's why this is a narrow gate, a small road, hard to find, hard to live. This is not an exercise and what worldview most closely aligns with what you think, it is a question of what rules and reigns you. Is it Jesus or is it something else? Jesus wants to make sure that we know what comes from our life matters. That your life matters. Your choices matter. Your motivations, your heart posture matters. What happens after you encounter Jesus for the first time matters. 
What you do matters to God. God wants your participation and engagement in his kingdom. He has for thousands of years used the local church as his plan A to advance his kingdom in the world. He wants us to engage with him and his mission. Jesus is the life not only for empowerment and commissioning, but as an example to follow after. We say, what is the life? What does a life of of good faith and good works look like? We can look to the life of Jesus. I referenced uh, the prophet Jeremiah last week, and I want to go to him again in Jeremiah chapter 24. But there's this beautiful and frightening tension we have in Scripture of being found by God versus being forgotten by God. That sounds weird. Let's go to Jeremiah 21, and we're going to compare that with what we're reading in Matthew. So we use this when we're preaching about prayer last week. Uh, so go back and listen to it if you missed it. Uh, but in Jeremiah 29, 11, we'll read the verse that everyone memorizes a kid first, then we'll get to the other verses. So Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Okay, we don't stop there, though. We keep reading the rest of of God's promise to us. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Man, what a beautiful promise about seeking the Lord. He hears us. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all your heart. Verse 14, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. When we fake it or pretend or put on a show, Jesus is telling us that you're missing it. It's not the point. Stop wasting all the effort. For real. There is such beauty and joy in being found by God and finding God. And Jesus says to those who would claim righteousness but have not been changed by me, he says, I'm going to read it. I don't even, I didn't even want to give my paraphrased version of it. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Our righteous good works are lawlessness apart from the transformation that comes from Jesus. Meaning, every good thing you do, if you've not been transformed by Jesus is lawlessness. So we're led to kind of a simple conclusion here today, because the truth of the gospel is we've been found by God. Right? Romans 5, 8, even while we were still in rebellion and sinning against him, he overcomes that and he finds us and he comes after us. He's been seeking after us, he founds us. And our, out of worshipful response and obedience, not begrudging obligation, we seek after him. So we talked about this a little bit last week, that because God finds us, we don't sit back and say, cool, you do everything, God. But he welcomes us into a relationship where we, too, pursue after him. And he promises he will be found by us. So some wrongly, some wrongly have feel they have been forgotten by God. Also, some wrongly feel they have been found by God. Jesus welcomes us into this tension and self-introspection. And so the question he asks is, are you known by the Father? 
Are you doing the will of the Father? Are you known by me? Have you been changed by me? Are you pursuing the will of the Father? So remember who he's talking to. Who's he talking to? The crowds and who else? Disciples. Okay. So we can't lose that. This is both kind of a marker of what kingdom life is and it's an invitation in. So for those of us feeling maybe convicted, if we are believers, the invitation is to repent, keep on repenting, pursue the change that comes with Christ. But for those who are hearing and have not fully given themselves to Christ, it's an invitation in to look at our lives and see nothing apart from Jesus will gain you salvation. Nothing apart from Jesus will ultimately bring satisfaction or fulfillment. Welcome in. Come find salvation, satisfaction, fulfillment in Christ. You cannot encounter Jesus and not be changed. You can't encounter Jesus and not be changed. The invitation from scriptures to be with Jesus to be like Jesus, to do the things he did. The invitation is to saturate yourself and delight yourself in him and be transformed. The invitation is to encounter Jesus and be changed. And this is not a one-time only thing, but it is a continual process for those of us who would call ourselves disciples of Jesus to continue seeking after him, coming to the well, encountering Jesus, and continually being changed by him to look more and more and more like him. More like him today than we were yesterday. More like him tomorrow than we were today. Sometimes those are big, momentous occasions where we're freed from addiction or freed from bondage or freeing ourselves from sin and putting our trust in Jesus. And sometimes it's one foot in front of the other, faithfully walking in the way of Jesus. The invitation is to come and encounter Jesus. To not be fooled by external acts of righteousness. Or not be fooled by fancy orators who might not have their lives be changed by Jesus. To not be fooled by the way of the crowd and going with the flow, but to look for the narrow gate. The invitation is to encounter Jesus and be changed.